All right, hey guys, everybody, how you doing? Yeah, I survived Camp Arcadia, that's right. Thank you for asking, Donna. Um, no, I, I didn't. I, um, that's true. You know, I, if I, ever to, I don't know if I ever told you this. When I was in high school, I, uh, so I, I remember working in the ginseng fields. You guys ever know? You should look up ginseng. Marathon County, highest producer of ginseng in the world. Yeah, Wisconsin ginseng is like the uh, the French wines of ginseng. Yeah, Marathon County. Big deal. That's if you're into ginseng, which I'm sure we all are. Um, the uh, it's it's kind of hard work. It's seasonal. Involves a lot of heavy lifting and you know. Bending over, grabbing weeds and stuff. Uh, ginseng has to be grown in the shade. So if you ever go into central Wisconsin, Marathon County specifically, you'll see these large fields that have these uh, black shade over the entire field. And, uh, you know, you have to, like, manually lift these things over. And so you're lifting these, you know, 200-pound dealios with a couple people. And it's a long day. I mean, I'm, what, 15, you know, and... Back in those days, my mom would just drop me off like at 8 o'clock in the morning and come pick me up at, you know, 5 or 6 at night. So, well, at the end of the day, somebody said, are you tired? I was like, yeah, of course I'm tired. They're like, well, they were going to like make fun of me or something like that. Like, you know, I wasn't going to be tired because they were like, oh, you were looking a little slow at the, I'm like, yes, because I was tired. So, ever since then, Paul He's like, oh, you, you're not ashamed of that? I said, no, I just, I just worked for like 10 hours. What are you talking about? This is normal to be tired, isn't it? He's like, well, uh, so. So I am a wimp is what I'm trying to say. But you know what? I'm a smart wimp. Now I do care, but not enough. Okay. I, uh, I actually, that, this, that could be tied into today's lesson. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, we know that you, I think it's translated as, you do not care about anyone's opinion. Same thing could be said to me. Pastor Nelson, we know you don't care about anyone's opinion. That's true, especially yours. No. Okay. Mark 11, 27 through 33. Okay, so uh, this section is, um, uh, well, obviously things are heating up now. You know, last week he cleansed the temple, and that, that's a very uh, important scene in the Gospels. Uh, and so today we, we find out kind of the ramifications, like, you know, basically Jerusalem's wondering, who is this guy? And many people think he is the Messiah, but then, you know, things change in a couple days. But um, the Pharisees, the leaders, really want to figure out who he is. Not to, like, believe in him, but to expose him as a fraud and then undermine him. So, in between the cleansing of the temple, uh, you know, Jesus leaves Jerusalem, heads back to Bethany, and you got this weird fig tree thing happening. So, this is the next day, uh, Mark eleven twenty-seven through 30. If you have a chance, though, to look up... Uh, so Pastor Bukes shows you um, the 
the one video of the gospel of Mark, and I've been trying to show you the other one, just as compare and contrast. So, Max McLean, Gospel of Mark, you can YouTube it. He does a, he does a good job of uh, interpreting Max McLean. That's the one I show, yeah. Right. Alec, Alec McGinnis, or is it McCowan? He's the guy who, yeah, he's the other guy. That's from the 1980s. Mine is from, like, the early 2000s. So um, the, uh, the reason why I wanted to show it to you, though, was how he demonstrates those who ask Jesus questions, uh, you know, they're up to no good. And, for, and actually, from the text, you know, he's, they're up to no good. But he does a good way of personifying that. He also demonstrates how Jesus... It's cool under pressure. Well, a cool insofar as he he knows what to do and he does it with uh, with a passion. Okay. Anyways, back. So uh, at the end of Mark chapter eleven, and then these next two scenes. So there's basically three scenes of challenging Jesus. Now, some people will do the a fourth one, which will be next week with Pastor Bukes, but uh, we've cut that one off from these because of the way the man asks the question and the way Jesus responds. It's actually a sign that someone from the religious leaders, they're not all out to get him. So there's, you know, there's hope. So especially if you're like the first Christians, you know, reading gospel Mark, it could be that there's no one in authority that is, that believes in Jesus, but in fact there are, even though they're they're small. Okay, so that's why we took that one off. All right, so there's three challenges to Jesus. First, it's the chief priests, scribes, and elders, which in the other Gospels is usually as the Sanhedrin. This is like this. This is like the kind of the. the there's no analogy to our experience here in the states. But you could say it's like Congress. They're like the ruling leaders of Israel. But they're not elected, and they have a completely different power and authority. But, okay. And then in chapter 12, verse 13, they send the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus. So this big group, once they get outwitted by Jesus, they send some other ones, and then they send the Sadducees. But they is intentionally ambiguous, and we'll get to that, because they could be this Sanhedrin, these uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders, but we find out that maybe there's somebody else working behind them. Okay. All right, so the text is right there, Mark eleven twenty-seven through 33, uh, and they came to Jerusalem, and as he was speaking, Walking in the temple. What is strange about Jesus walking in the temple now? Think about in terms, again, I always think about it in terms of a movie. What just happened? Yeah. So you would think, you know, he broke a law. I mean, he disturbed the peace, broke the law. But where is he now the next day? He's back to the scene of the crime. So that already tells us something about 
who Jesus is and what is actually going on here. Uh, and then the chief, okay, they, the people come to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? What does these things mean? Cleansing of the temple. Now, the cleansing of the temple, you, you probably, uh, Pastor Bukes might have mentioned this. Um, and, you know, it's a prophetic sign. He's, this, so this isn't like an unusual thing. There's prophets in Israel, John the Baptist being a major prophet at this time. So Jesus doing this thing wasn't necessarily a, hey, let's, you know, go to the state capitol and sit in and, you know, demand some sort of justice. He's not, he's not creating public havoc to make a statement. He actually is just, he's making a statement. I mean, he's, this is a, the prophetic sign. So when the chief priests and elders come up to Jesus, they want to know, is this guy a legitimate prophet? Of course, they've heard things about Jesus. I mean, some of these people might have seen Jesus out in Galilee. So, you know, these they're they're asked, they're wondering if this is really a true prophet. Now, of course, their their questions are not legitimate. They want to expose him as a false prophet, and um, so that's why they want to know what authority he's doing this. Because if he says, um, you know, by a, by a man, you know, by John the Baptist or whoever. He can, they can discount him. And of course, if he says from God, then uh, they're also in a bad spot too, but that's easier to discredit because uh, we don't know this necessarily from the Gospel of Mark, but um, the Messiah, where does the Messiah come from? And where is Jesus from? It's kind of a trick question. The Messiah does not come from Nazareth. comes from Bethlehem, right? Son of David. But where is Jesus known to be from? Nazareth. So they can, they can question his, his authority by his birth. And of course, that was done in the early church. After, um, yeah. In fact, you have some early uh, apologetics against Christianity saying that Jesus was, in fact, the son of, like, a, a, well, a son of Joseph, right? But then even, even like, son of, like, a Roman soldier and just random things. Yeah. But in the Bible itself, it's the son of Joseph. Isn't this Joseph's son? So they're questioning. Okay. So they, they really want to expose him as a false prophet because what do you do to false prophets? Yeah, you, you, you stone them to death. So this is what they're doing. They're trying to expose him so they can... Stone him. Um, but of course, if Jesus is back in the temple, he already is claiming authority. He is like, you know, the seven-year-old boy here at church. What do they do? They walk around the place like they own it. So Jesus is the same way. Okay, um, and that's important for us because, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge Jesus' authority in our own life. Okay? So, this is hopefully helping us acknowledge that. All right, now, of course, what does authority mean? It's some kind of combination of right and power. And when I say right, I mean like, you know, like 
my kids, you know, when they have friends over, right, what do they say? This is my house. You know. Their guests, while well, they're going to be good hosts, they don't let the guests run the place, right? Hey, this is how we do things here. So this is, uh, so by what authority, is, the question is, you know, who, who do you say you are? And of course, then it's a question of God and man, which is the very question then Jesus asks them about John the Baptist. Is this, John the Baptist, was he from God or from man? So he turns the tables, turns things around upon them. And, of course, if you, um, so Jesus answers a question with a question. And that was very normal in rabbinic debate back in those days. You know, if you have an argument, you, you ask a question in return. Now, the thing is, though, when Jesus asks a question, what does he demand? Yeah, he says, answer me. Yeah, so he's actually, he's actually claiming authority in this argument that you, you don't actually have the right to question me, but you can answer me. So this is, I mean, think, you got to think about this in terms of way back when and how much Jesus is like the, the, the um, BMC, right? The big man on campus. Oh yeah, yeah. So you, the, 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 the everything is just stewing here. Um, well, we'll get to. But think about this in terms of two of. You know, in Mark chapter one, Jesus in the wilderness is a very short. It's like two verses long. We have no story about how Satan tried to tempt Jesus. Okay, but in these three stories, we have precisely this battle going on. So I'm already telling you, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, while they're engaging in this, there's someone behind them, and it's Satan himself. And we actually know this by some of the words in the, in the text. So... In the gospel, in the other gospels, uh, it says, you know, Satan leaves Jesus for an opportune time, and that's usually in reference to Holy Week now. So now Satan is—he's—he's uh, he's doing his nastiest, um, and so that's why Jesus is really taking this to him. I mean, he's coming back to the scene of the crime. He's telling them, you know, you know, he's like. You know, you don't know me, and makes them answer him. So uh, that's really important for us. Uh, in the um, the Passion of the Christ, you see, there's some great scenes from Holy Week where Satan's always kind of lurking in the background, kind of nasty, gross. So that's that's uh, that's a helpful image. Okay. Then um, okay, so when Jesus asks him about, asks them about John's baptism. He's not just asking like a general question, but he's also asking like, do they actually believe John the Baptist? Which means then, do you believe that you need repentance? And the other thing that Jesus, that John's baptism says, um, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and then the acknowledgement of the one greater coming after him. So if they say, you know, from God, of course he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? 
but not just believe him in general, but believe him about, about Jesus. Because John the Baptist confessed about Jesus. So he's, I mean, he's really taking it to him. I mean, he's, it's, it's really kind of crafty. I always, I always find this very exciting as a, when I read the Bible. Um, okay, but of course now as the reader, we know that Jesus has an authority that comes from the Heavenly Father, from his baptism. But not just his baptism, but then re, reconfirmed also in the transfiguration. All right, so, um, yeah, so if acknowledging John's message is acknowledging who Jesus is, then which means acknowledging you're hearing, you're repenting, you're believing, you're, you're, you know, you're receiving, you're accepting, and then you're following. So this is a whole bunch of stuff happening right now in this little dialogue. So it, again, the answer, I mean, for us, it's like, you know, well, yeah, we know it's from heaven, but what does that even mean? All right, so the answer, uh, answer me, then, is also for us. So when Jesus says, answer me, we also have to give an answer. Because at the end of the gospel, when the women say to, um, the, the, well, I'm sorry, when the angels say to the women, go tell the disciples to go to Galilee, you only go to Galilee if you've made this answer to who Jesus is. Okay, so hang on, so let's, let's go a little fast. So Mark chapter 16, in the resurrection, um, the three women go to the tomb, and there's a man there, and kind of an angelic-looking man, white robes, and, and hey, Jesus isn't here. He's alive. But go to Galilee, just like he said, and you will see him there. You only make that three-day journey if you acknowledge who Jesus is. Because, for a variety of reasons, one, it's a three-day journey. You know, you're not going to walk for three days without <laughs> just to see if it works. Um, because that three-day journey is not an easy journey. And also, of course, who, um, what's the movie? Like the mystery about who, where did Jesus' body go? It just came out a couple years ago. I took the confirmation kids to it. I should remember. I watched it. Anyways, it's uh, Joseph Fiennes, the character who acted in, as Draco Malfoy from the Harry Potter movies. He's in it. What's the name of that movie? Risen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Risen. Just one word. That's it. Risen. Thank you, Kathy. Um. Yeah, because, you know, the followers, you know, they're, they're in trouble not only just with the Jewish authorities, but just the Roman authorities, too. So, I mean, it, it's not a, uh, like, an easy journey. It's a, it's a hard three-day journey, and also it could get you arrested. Okay, so you only make, those, you only make that confession, uh, of course, by faith. All right, any questions about that text? I mean, there's a lot of other little funny, great, interesting things in there. Because, um, you know, when they say, we do not know, you know, imagine the scene. Who's all around them? Right, the crowds. Yeah, so when they say, we do not know, even the, the crowds know John the Baptist. They know he's a man of God. So the fact that they say they don't know, not only... Um, 
It makes them look like idiots. Well, yeah, well, of course they should know because this is like this is like rudimentary like Sunday school stuff. We of course know John the Baptist was a prophet because of what he said and what he did. But the fact that when they say don't know, just it just it's just it's like uh, it's, it's embarrassing. Yeah, embarrassing to the point though that you know someone would want to kill you over it, and of course that's that's what happens. Well, I completely, yeah, completely under. I, the, the sad thing is, is that they do it to themselves, though. That's that's the funny thing, and and of course, then when Jesus dupes them or outwits them, he's out, already outwitting Satan, and that's why things get more irrational as things move along. And we see that actually irrationality in the parable of the judgment in Mark chapter one, twelve. 1 through 12. Because he begins to speak to them in parables. Who's them into... Uh, it, it's, it's the... I mean, he's just loading it on right now. Jesus is really taking it to them. So he tells, he tells this parable to them. And they know that he had told the parable against them. So it's not like it's tricky. What does he mean by that? Um, so if there's any confusion, one is Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is in the background. He's kind of like a rapper right now. Jesus is like a rapper in general, by the way. You guys know what rap is? Oftentimes they, he, people, rappers sample things from other people. He does that with the Old Testament a lot. He'll take an Old Testament story and then he'll make a riff. Like he'll riff on it. So... You'll uh, see Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. You're like, oh, hey, this is almost like what Jesus is saying. But it's not exactly. And that's a, it's, it's, uh, a purpose because people will have known this text because it's a messianic text. So people, people would have known it. So when Jesus riffs on it, he's, you know, he's saying it relates to him. But at the same time, he's also saying he has authority to do that. Yeah, to, to make a riff. No, you just can't just do that. Yeah, you just can't like, hey, I'm just going to change it. I'm going to change the meaning. Jesus does, though, because, of course, he's the authority of Scripture. Oh, and that's what he says, actually. Well, so when he, then, okay, so Isaiah 5 is the parable, but then uh, Psalm 118. I forgot to look up the verse. I didn't put, I didn't put that in there. Um Psalm 118, verse something or another, Jesus, Jesus then takes an actual quote from Scripture. Well, yeah, he, do, I mean, he says he does here. Um, and then he actually applies it to himself in a way that's um, maybe a little different than we would think. Holly? Um, so would it be unusual for any old person to start quoting Scripture to people? I guess when you put it like that, it makes you think that. Yeah, well, yes, yeah. But he's already like stepping up people's toes by quoting Scripture. Well, yeah, quoting Scripture, like applying it to himself, that's very unusual. So um, you see this also in Luke 
when he's in the synagogue and he, he steps up and reads and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, uh, people are like, whoa, this guy is crazy. And I think, I think one of the Jesus movies we looked at, we, we saw that. I can't remember if we did or not, but I think it's the, the Jesus in Nazareth, the blue-eyed Jesus, which is one of my favorites. Not quite historically accurate, but the blue-eyed Jesus. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember the reaction, right? Like he gets basically thrown out of the synagogue and people are like, oh, they go, out of cra- they go crazy. So, yeah, I mean, when, when you apply a scripture to yourself, either you're, either you're a, a, like a prophet and you have to prove it, or you're crazy, or, or you, you're, you're the Messiah. Oh, Isaiah, 118, verse 22. Thank you very much. Builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yeah. And the word cornerstone, we anachronistically apply meaning to this because most cornerstones are chosen with great, you know, like they have to be square, right? They have to be very square and careful. Um, But what is interesting is the cornerstone is rejected. The, the stone is rejected. Well, why, why would a cornerstone be rejected? Because it's not 90 degrees. It's not, so it's irregular. But what's interesting is, um, so that's like a horizontal. You know, cornerstones are right on the horizontal. But there's another building imagery that is actually very applicable to this text, and that is an archway. And the last piece cannot be square in the arch. It has to be irregular. It's, yeah, it's a capstone. So, so that is probably a better image for us uh, to think about because without the capstone, everything falls apart. That's true, but the image, basically, a builder would not reject a square cornerstone. But you would, re- you would reject a capstone for a cornerstone, because it's not, it's not straight. So, actually, so that is rejected actually turns out to be the final piece that holds it all together. So, that, anyways, that, that's more of a, that's neither here nor there. It's just more of a, that's the imagery that's being, being shown here. So that we can kind of um, make sense, because you wouldn't say, well, and also too, you, you, the cornerstone comes comes first, right? You, you don't like put the cornerstone last. So there's a variety of reasons why cornerstone, you, you, yeah, it, it, you reject it as the cornerstone because it becomes the capstone. That's that's basically it. Um, it's the last one. But the last one, so the last, of course, becomes the most important. In a way, it becomes first. This is, all this is happening when Jesus quotes this. Because, of course, Jesus is going to be the, you know, come in last because he's going to die, right? He's a loser. But, of course, he's the first to rise. But let's actually get to the parable. Was there a question over here? No? Okay. 
the parable. So any, any, I mean, this is this is one of the few parables where it's painfully obvious, based on Isaiah chapter five, what it is. I mean, the vineyard owner is God. The vineyard means Israel. Tenants mean the religious leaders. The servants are the prophets. And you know, there's a, a reference to hitting somebody on the head in verse four. Of course, who who, who would that have been? Think about it in terms of prophets who had who got hit in the head. John the Baptist. Yes, I mean, this is like, I mean, Jesus is like, because he's talking to the Herodians. Or, I mean, the Herodians are right there. Um, so he's, he's really, yeah. And, of course, the son now, now they might not understand that part, but he's making reference to himself. So what's interesting is the, Jesus doesn't deny their authority. They are the ones who were in charge. But they wanted ownership rather than stewardship. And that's really important for us because, because um, you know, the people of God have leaders. I mean, this is just kind of the way things are. And those leaders, though, are given stewardship to, to serve. Now, we've already seen that in Mark chapter 10, right? The Son of Man came to serve and not be served. So, as a reader, we're, we're actually now seeing what happens when leaders uh, are, you know, create an environment to be served and then claim ownership over it. And what's interesting about this is um, I, I can't help... <laughs> Think about some of my time here as pastor, but not just here. I met with a pastor yesterday, and um, he—I just kind of, kind of chuckled to myself because I'm like, "Oh, hey, this, I'm going to teach on this tomorrow." And he—he he was uh, telling me a story about how um, there's a longtime member who left this parish where he's serving, and he—he he just got there just a few years ago, so you know he. He didn't really know who they were, I mean, that much. And they ended up talking to him and saying, uh, this is not my church anymore. You Now, of course, he's got blamed for a lot of things he didn't, because he's brand new. Okay? I mean, like, a lot of these things, like, he had no particular influence on. But, of course, he's a new guy, and, if, and they're going to pick on him. So... He's like, have you ever had this happen to you? I'm like, yeah, I have. Um, you know, you've taken my church away, or this is, you know, you've changed my church. When you're like, when you're asking yourself, I think I'm just, I'm just, I think I'm supposed to be doing this as a, this is part of just being a pastor, right? Teaching the fullness of God's word, and so I, I, I can't help to think about when, when the, when the, the uh, tenants say. Let's kill the son, and we'll claim the inheritance. This is ours. This is my church. You know, it's irrational, though, right? Because um, any code of law back in the old days would not let the tenants keep the land. They would just—they wouldn't. That's just not a thing. You know, that's like if I kill all the people in the bank, I get to keep the money, right? Because there's no one here. It's just kind of crazy. So. And that, you know, that's the same, too, is that, you know, these people who left this, this, this church where this, this young pastor was um, serving, 
Like, it's not their church, actually. They can't lay claim to it. Um, because it's, you know, it's Jesus' church. And he does actually have leaders in there who are called to serve and called to be stewards. And um, sometimes that means, like Jesus, you know, making changes to go back to faithfulness, to go, to go back to what Jesus, you know, to what God says. And when that happens, sometimes people don't like it, and so they try to lay claim to it, to not change. So, because um, this is the interesting thing about the parable, is that the, uh, the, the, the master, or the, the, the does, the, does this translation say the Lord of the vineyard? Okay. Finally, says to them, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Okay. It's, it's, it could be translated as like the Lord of the vineyard. But anyways, um, the, um, you know, the, the thinking is that this owner of the vineyard, he comes at the appropriate time. How is that different than the fig tree? Jesus, Jesus came to the fig tree, right, when there shouldn't be any fruit on it anyways. So this, I mean, this, this, there's no confusion now. The, the owner of the vineyard comes at the appropriate time, which is the keros time, the time of fulfillness. And then what, is he, what does he actually ask? Does he ask for all the fruit? No, some of the fruit, which means there's plenty to go around. So this owner is not one who lords it over them and also is a... Um, you know, just a, a mean owner. This guy is actually a, a normal person who wants to share the fruits of the vineyard with the tenants. So, um, so it just really shows that these people are so self-referential. Only all they can do is think about themselves, and the only way out of it is well, p- probably pain and suffering. Or maybe the Lord will come in a dream, wake them up the next day, and they'll say, I've sinned against the Lord and my fellow man, and ask for, for forgiveness. But anyways, so the whole point, though, is that um, the, uh, this, this parable has a lot of ramifications for ourselves. Because when, when things get crazy in our lives, sometimes we really want to lay claim to them when, in fact... God's already, he's already in control and this story helps us because Jesus is the one who's already kind of trotted along the path already. So we've, Now, of course, this makes it abundantly clear later. Um, when they leave him, they don't, they're not surrendering, but they're regrouping. And um, you find out that Satan's really working because they want to trap him. And then Jesus says, you know, why do you put me to the test? They're tempting him. And then later in the, the thing about the Sadducees, although it's not translated this way, um, in verse 24, is this not the reason you are wrong? It could be translated as, you are deceived. 
So Satan's so Satan's the one who tempts puts Jesus to the test, and he's the great deceiver. So um, so that's why Jesus is really hard on them, because they are idol worshiping. You know, and Satan's behind the whole thing. You know, because there's no there's no arguing with Satan. You can't. There's no reasoning with him, because he's irrational. There's only shutting him up and casting him out. So now you can understand why they're really mad at him. <laughs> because he essentially puts him in, in league with Satan. But of course they don't recognize that and they make things worse when they, they uh, Caesar comes along. So And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Uh, now, this is interesting, too, because um, this gets to the fundamental nature of humanity and the loyalties of humanity. Idol worship. Who, who do you worship? So, um, in ESV, anyone's face is translated as anyone's opinion, but the word is prosopone. So, it Basically, it can say, you know, Jesus, uh, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's face. You're not swayed by appearances. Um, you're not swayed by anyone's face, but truly teach the way of God. Now, of course, is that a true statement? <laughs> yes, but do they believe this? No. Um, so it's revealing um, that they're hypocrites. And, of course, Jesus exposes that. Now, the reason why that's important, though, is because um, this sort of, like, image, which I wrote down, pun intended, is, uh, it's okay to say that, but the word, the word play, you kind of lose the word play. Uh, and, and so what they're saying about this now is, um, Jesus doesn't look at the face, but looks at the heart. And that makes a reference to 1 Samuel 16.7 and Isaiah 11.3. Is that they're confessing of Jesus as one who does not look at the face, but looks at the heart. So they're actually making a confession of a true statement about who Jesus is. Now the thing is, though, is that um, this coin now is not just kind of neutral money. The image on the coin is sacrilege because you, you can't have this image inside the temple. Now, the fact that it's readily available to show Jesus shows that some people have not, are not, not obeying uh, Old Testament law. But the also thing, too, is that um, this, there's an inscription on this coin. So, Caesar... At this time, was uh, well. So Julius Caesar is the first guy who claims this title Caesar, and then Augustus, Caesar Augustus, the son of Julius Caesar, lays claim to this, and then the Caesars, like the next couple Caesars or rulers, uh, also claim this. That's right. So Julius Caesar. When Augustus, because, uh, you know, Julius Caesar, of course, was assassinated, right, by Mark Antony. 
Shakespeare fans. That's right. Um, and so because of this, though, there's, there was a lot of uh, reverence for this. And so uh, Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, lays claim to be the son of the son of God, divinity. So not only is he ruler of the Holy Land, but he also claims divinity for himself. So it's not, it's not a, just a money question. This is a idolatry question. This is a worship question. Who, who, do, you, who, who, who do you worship? Or who, who, who do, who's your first? Who's first in your life? Where do your loyalties ultimately lie? Um, and of course we don't see that because none of us have a, you know, I don't think any of you guys have a denarius at home, do you? Because if you do, that'd be great. I'd love to see it. I mean, I always see it in pictures. But, um, so when, when, when Jesus, when they're asking, hey, should we pay this tribute? They're trying to trap Jesus into saying that there's somebody greater than, than himself or, or God. Now, he really, again, is masterful at this and basically gives this kind of ambiguous answer, rendered to Caesar's, that uh, the things that are Caesar's and to the God, the things that are God's. The one thing that this really means is God is the one who's above all. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's really it. But, but the thing is, is that, um, so, so you could pay, I mean, so in a sense, you could pay the tribute because Caesar is nothing. And money is, is not a ultimate, you know, our loyalties don't ultimately lie in this money, so you could, you could pay it. And that seems to be the case for a lot of early Christians, is that they would pay it, knowing that Caesar isn't the ultimate authority. And of course, you would see that in the witness of the early Christians, especially in the Gospel of Mark, or the early congregation that Mark was preaching to, because what happened to him? This would have been last last spring. So um, <laughs> they were. So there's two theories on the Gospel of Mark. One that was written in Rome and um, written around the time of Nero. He burned the city down, and who got blamed for it? Christians. So you need to have a gospel. You need to have the story of Jesus that talks about basically dying and suffering. As, as joining Jesus in his way, as this form of discipleship. So that all fits within the Gospel of Mark. Uh, okay, so you, ha- you have early Christians who might pay a tribute tax to Caesar, but by their death, you know that their ultimate loyalties lie with God. The other theory is that it's actually written in Jerusalem, which then would apply really directly kind of to this text. You have early Christians who are going to be paying this tribute, and you could have people like the Apostle Paul, you know, before he, before he became Christian, killing Christians. So, anyways, so, um, but, but the, you know, but of course, though, if he says you should pay it, if Jesus says he should pay it, he's going to offend, offend the crowds because they really don't want this, you know, they don't want to acknowledge Rome, Rome as being this actual power in charge of the Holy Land. Uh, I went to the Baltic states this last summer during my sabbatical. And Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, all three countries 
have a hundred year independence. 1918, 2018. But if you have lived through the 70s or 80s or 50s, you know, 1950s, and if you maybe lived through the 40s too, I don't know, some of you might have, um, you, uh, you would know, you, you would know about the Soviet Union and how they actually were rulers of these three, a variety of other countries, but these three countries too. But Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania both consider the Soviet Union a foreign occupying power and never really were, was in charge. That's why they can say they had 100 years of independence. It's a kind of a similar way for some of the Israelites at this time. Rome is not actually in charge. They're just a foreign occupying power. And Israel is just going to wait them out. But, of course, the proud, the proud ones will say, of course I'm not going to pay that tribute because they, why would I pay? I don't have to pay that because they're not in charge. Okay? So if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and pay it, you have this whole group of people who are going to be completely offended. And then, of course, if he says, don't pay it, the Herodians especially, the Herodians are in cahoots with the Romans, can say, this guy is uh, treasonous and we can get him, kill him. So what didn't work at the first try when, uh, you know, when the, um, the guys came up and questioned Jesus' authority about uh, you know, John the Baptist, because if he's proved to be a false prophet, they can kill him. Now, if he says, don't pay it, they can kill him now, too, for treason. Because they're really banking on him not, not paying it. Because, now this would be... Why would, they, why would they be banking on him saying, don't pay it? You know this, okay, so oftentimes our fears are projected on others. And what are the Pharisees and the rulers afraid of? Well, we, we already know from the earlier text why they said, we don't know. Why did they say, we don't know about John the Baptist? They feared the people. So if Jesus says, pay it, if Jesus says, pay it, yeah, the crowd, the, the, the people are going to hate him. But Jesus does not fear them. Which is, I mean, it's brilliant. By the way, this, this whole like, section of the Gospel of Mark is so well written. It's, it's so, so interesting. Um, yeah, so, so they presume he's going to say, pay it because, of course, like them, he must be afraid of the crowds because he's, you know, he wants to be popular. He wants to be in. Of course, they've already confessed this about him. You don't care about anybody's appearances. They're lying. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's just a, it's a really, really fun little, you know, yeah, you got him. Boom. But of course, though, um, Jesus' answer gets to the root of everything. Where do our loyalties belong? It belongs to the one who made you. So it also gives humanity uh, more meaning than, than power or money. Anybody remember? That's, that's a rap quote. Money and the power. Power and the money. Minute after minute. Come on! Nice! Whew. Gangster Paradise. 
Okay, listen, man. I'm just saying that um, this is another thing too. So I'll uh, we'll just do a little tangent here. Have I ever told you about like what I do, what I do with uh, vicars when they come? Present vicar excluded because uh, he doesn't have, he didn't grow up in the United States. Um, I always have him listen to rap music. Did I, did I ever tell you that before? There's a series of old school raps that I need to have vicars listen to because the life of a pastor is very similar to the life of a gangster. So rap really is, is really kind of a normal part of our life here at St. John. Okay. Well, you just, uh, you're not, if you're not going to be a vicar, then you won't have to worry about it. So there you go. Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't bring that kind of rap into uh, any sort of youth trips. Cause, well, the Gangster Paradise was, because that's a radio version one. Yeah. But even the non-radio version one has only like one or two inappropriate words. No, the, the, the rap I have them listen to is, um, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't let, I, I'm a little, I'm a little embarrassed by doing it, but I, I but not enough to make me not do it. Yeah, I have no shame. In fact, I, t- I say to him, how could you not get this? I remember Pastor Bukes, when he was a vicar, I did it to him. And, uh. Pastor Beeks was so nice. He just, you know, he was like, "Yeah, yeah okay." Like, I don't, I don't think he understood. I don't, I don't think he got it. Now he does. So, okay. Okay. The last bit is the uh, question about the resurrection. Okay. So, uh, the one thing about this is where do your ultimate loyalties lie here on Earth with God, of course. And now you have a question about life after Earth, the resurrection. Um. Now, this is a very interesting story because I don't know if you guys remember uh, when we did the Apocrypha. I think Pastor Bukes did the, the, the Tobit story, right? So did anybody, like, when you hear, like, oh, hey, this sounds like Tobit. Yeah, there's a theory out there that they're actually making fun of Tobit. Now, because the Sadducees make fun of a lot of Scripture, because not only do the Sadducees not believe in the resurrection, which you get from the text, they actually only hold the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. So like the prophets, the Psalms, Proverbs, none of that is scripture. And of course, then anything from the intertestamental period, which would be the Apocrypha, of course, has nothing to do with things. So that is a theory. I, I, I happen to think that's probably a pretty good theory. Because what are they getting at? They're getting at authority again. And, and, of course, scripture authority, because we know that from Jesus' response. He actually answers their question with a scripture citation from the, the scripture they actually hold as authoritative. And on top of that, there has been some research done. I haven't done enough. Like, I don't, I'm not going to do it. This is, this is kind of trivial, but I think it's kind of neat. Is that when Jesus says, don't you know that this is the God of the living, not of the God of the dead, that there's actually a, a theory out there that can't be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, that actually that was, a, that was a slogan of the Sadducees. Because what do they not believe in? The resurrection. This God is about the God of the living right now, not about life after death. 
Now, if that was true, that, I mean, again, holy smokes. Jesus really, really takes it to him. And I, so I would, I, would, I would probably say, yeah, that's probably true, but I can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I think that's a really great theory because of how he has turned the tables on each of the previous questioners. Yeah, Jody. Yeah, the fear. Okay, so two major differences are their ethnic or like their family line. Sadducees are uh, an, an elite group where the chief priest comes, and the Pharisees are just kind of well, they're all from the tribe of Levi. But um, within that, there's these kind of family lines. But more importantly. The Pharisees are the ones who hold what we would consider the whole Old Testament of Scripture. So they're different than the Sadducees. Also, the, um, the Pharisees believe in the oral law, which we would say all these different rules they made up, you know. And the Sadducees do not. They do not hold the oral law as authoritative. So th- those are some of the differences Pharisees believe in resurrection? No. Oh, yes. Pharisees do believe in resurrection. Yeah, absolutely. Just the Sadducees. And, of course, there's the joke. Yeah, that's why they're sad, you see. Okay. Um, <laughs> but really, the point of this whole section is Jesus' interpretation of the Scripture. And when he says to him, you do not know the Scripture nor the power of God. Now, some, some manuscripts have nor the power within or there within or something. And that's really the point, is that the Sadducees are laying claim to this authority. Again, their, their question is completely insincere, and really they're trying to shame Jesus. I mean, it's kind of a joke. And anyways, so he says, you're wrong, which I love. But you're wrong. You know, there's no debate. You're wrong. Um, at the end, you are quite wrong. You are really wrong. You know, you are so beyond wrong, you don't even know what you're talking about. Um, but it is really, so how does, the, how does Scripture work in their life? How does Scripture, so this is a question, so this is a statement that also should ask us, whoa, how does Scripture and the power of God uh, direct our lives? And so, unfortunately, we don't have time to get into that, but maybe that's what, something you can think about, is really, I mean, that's why we have Bible study. A Bible study because our world needs to be formed by God's word. Unfortunately, for many people, the world forms God's word. So we take our life and then we make God's word fit into this life. When in fact, it's the other way around. We need to take our life and fit it in God's word. Because by doing that, then our life is transformed just like the Sadducees' life is transformed. Christ takes a rallying cry of their own and actually shows them that this is the real, this is the real meaning behind this. So this is important for us because when we are incorporated into God's word, our life then opens up beyond the living and goes into the dead. And um, that's, that has to do with the discussion on angels too. Hopefully, I can't remember if I put that in there, but the, um, 
one of the interesting things is that Jesus might be making a confession of the fact that angels, the, the distance between the living and the dead is, is not as far as we might think. Um, as angels are among us, maybe, maybe the veil between life and death is, is a lot shorter than we think. And, 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 of course, we do confess this in the liturgy when we, we confess that when we go to church, we go to church with the living and the dead, with uh, those who are in heaven also. So, of course, Jesus is the place that brings this together. But, um, well, there's a lot of things to think about there, too. Holly. I'm sure everyone got this, but it just became more clear to me why he uses that statement about Moses. It's an intense issue. So he didn't say... Right. I am the God. Right. I am the God. I am the God. So they're still living. Yep. Dead. That's right. Um, <laughs> that was unclear for anyone else. Maybe. No, no. That, that's uh, that's exactly right. And that. Um, any other questions? Comments, concerns, critiques. I'll try to keep rap music out of next time. But let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.